This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. It's Emmy voting season, and I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. So yes, uh, Emmy voters have their ballots now, um, and we have we have dived deep into the ballots themselves, which you can talk about later. So we're going to talk about a lot of our Emmy stuff that we're running right now, including some of the most fascinating conversations I think any of us get to have all year, where we really get to dive deep on a lot of these shows. Um, we'll talk about some news, including uh, Lightyear at the box office and the Father of the Bride remake that's out now. And we'll continue our Pride flashback series with a look back at 2011's Pariah. But before we get to any of that, we've got some breaking news this week. The Academy has announced this year's Governor's Awards honorees and has been the tradition for years past. They will be celebrated at a separate ceremony in November, which we can talk about how much we support that. Um, But the lineup is pretty fascinating. We've got Michael J. Fox getting the Hirschholt Award, the Humanitarian Award for his work on behalf of Parkinson's and, you know, his general Hollywood stature. Um, Peter Weir, the director of The Truman Show and Master Commander, among others, Diane Warren, our really, we talk about her every year, nominated so many times as a songwriter, we're getting an honorary award. And then Yuzhan Palsi, who directed A Dry White Season and was the first black woman to direct a studio film, period, um, back in the 80s, will all be the honorary winners. Uh, Rebecca, you wrote up the news for us. How do you feel about this list? I feel really excited about it. I think Diane Warren was the first name that really popped out to me because obviously we talk about her literally every season because she gets nominated <laughs> every single season and and has not won she has 13 nominations at this point and and I root for her to win every year and there's just like you know because of the way the seasons go there's there's a hot song that that beats her out for original song every year so I'm excited to get to see her take that stage and give an acceptance speech but I do feel like the entire group is, is a lot of good choices Richard, whose speech are you excited to see? Well, I mean, Diane Warren, you know, she did an interview with Variety, like, about this news. And, you know, when those honorary things are announced, especially to someone who's, like, never won competitively but has had many chances to, you start, you you worry that, like, oh, this is just some sort of sad little consolation prize. But she seems genuinely excited, (laughs) like, (laughs) partly because she's the first songwriter to ever get an honorary Oscar, which Uh so that like adds an extra distinction to it. 
she's like, I'm going to put it somewhere pro- on my piano so I can see it every day. Like, she seems really excited. And I think that's the right mood to go into it with. Who cares if you didn't win competitively? Maybe it's even better that they said, you know, regardless of anything you've made this year, we're going to give you an Oscar anyway. <laughs> um, I think that's cool. And, you know, look, I, I think further down the, the line of, of world renown, I think that Uzan Palsy getting this is great because I am not really aware of her work. I I certainly knew I'd heard of a dry white season. I've never seen it, but um, I guess this gives me a really good reason to finally watch it. Not only, Katie, you mentioned the studio film thing, she's also the first um, Black woman to win a Cesar Award, or a director. She has a, a long list of kind of firsts and accomplishments, and I think it's really cool that, in addition to the more PR buzzworthy Diane Warren inclusion, that they also are giving it to someone who really could benefit from that recognition. Yeah, it feels like a nice balance of the Academy's recent impulse to really expand their horizons, pay more attention to international film, to marginalized voices, and then recognize the Diane Warrens of the world or the Peter Weirs, who has made so many fantastic films, like going all the way back to Witness, Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, and doesn't have an Oscar either. Um, and I would remind everyone that Spike Lee got an honorary Oscar and then won a competitive one like two years later. So no one's giving up here. Yeah, I, I do. I always think this is a way for the Academy to highlight someone that should have probably, you know, been much more in the conversation years ago. But obviously, with the make of the uh, makeup of the Academy and and the opportunities for you know people from wide backgrounds has not always been there. So I I love the Governor's Award. I think it's it's a great way to you know bring people back into the conversation. And and like Richard said, I think we should probably all watch her film and. And talk about it on this podcast, maybe. Yeah, it's yeah. It's definitely going to give people a chance to appreciate her work again. Well, we'll all watch A Dry White Season and Picnic at Hanging Rock and listen to uh, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now and Don't Want to Miss a Thing and Doc Hollywood and be fully prepared for the Governor's Awards. We could go really deep and watch uh, For Love or Money, the much reviled Michael J. Fox movie from the early <laughs> 90s. <laughs> I'm sure that's a major part of what this award's being given for. Um, real quick, before we move on, Rebecca, you attend the Governor's Awards for us. You went this past year where it was a little bit of a muted ceremony because of COVID. Um, but what what should Diane Warren and Peter Weir be bracing for when they accept these awards? Well, it sounds like this one will be back, hopefully, you know, in the form it was before COVID. Last year's was um, pushed because of a COVID surge. So it happened outside of voting and right before um, the Oscars, which meant that the people vying for Oscars did not come. So it was very small. It was really a wonderful event and it felt really special, but it wasn't usually this event is very big because all of the people hoping to win an Oscar come to sort of kiss the ring and work the room and talk to voters and things like that. So it sounds like this, if it stays in November as planned, will be back to that sort of big spectacle, still untelevised, but that's, it's really cool to be in a, you know, it's a very star-studded room when it is in that form. And it's a lot of their, obviously, colleagues and collaborators there to support them. And, and it feels... I think being in front of a room that big will feel special for them to accept the the Oscars on stage like that. So I hope it it remains as planned to be sort of that big wonderful event and and you know last year this clip of Samuel L. Jackson and, and Denzel Washington who presented to him sort of went viral and everyone was like, why isn't this televised? Like it looks so special. So I, I do wonder if they there's a, a solution for that because they just show little clips right now during the main Oscars, I believe. 
Yeah, or if that, you know, I feel like they, they've been trying to shove it off the broadcast as much as possible. So we'll, we'll continue beating the drum for them to give it its proper spotlight because these people are all worthy. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's start by just uh, congratulating ourselves, or I guess I'll congratulate you, Rebecca, because you heroically <laughs> wrangled yet another Reunited series, um, which is so fun. I, like, seriously, some of the best interviews you get to see with people because they're talking to each other. Um, and I, I don't know if you want to start with the behind the scenes of how incredibly hard it was to get people to reunite because everyone's working so much right now. Yeah, it did feel, you know, we started this a year ago during Emmy season, and then we did Oscar season, and this time around did feel harder because I think it just seems like everyone is back in production. You know, we had a major slowdown during the pandemic and and now everyone is sort of playing catch up. So trying to get people to spend a little bit of time between shooting to do these conversations, even over Zoom, turned out to be really hard. Obviously, we wanted to do a couple in person, but that turned out to be nearly impossible. I think we got some really great pairings, uh, but like, I remember trying to get Jennifer Coolidge. It was like she was shooting season two of White Lotus in Italy and you had to like find her in her villa. And and so there was just a lot of like tracking down people on set, which is not a bad problem to have. You know, I'm glad everything is up and moving again. But I thought um, the pairings we did, like the, the original projects that they met on, I felt like were some really important films that, you know, a lot of people still care about today. So that I think was the most exciting thing about this group that we we got paired this time around. Yeah, as an old millennial, I was so excited that uh, Hilary Busis talked to Gabby Hoffman and Christina Ricci. Um, Christina Ricci from her, like, hotel room in Mexico on vacation with her family. <laughs> like, yeah, put her baby yeah. on camera. Um, like, that that one meant a lot to me. Um, but in terms of the ones you did, Rebecca, what um, which reunion did you maybe enjoy the most? Um, I, well, as a fan of Gilmore Girls, I thought it was really fun to get Danny Strong and Amy Sherman Palladino back together. Um, you know, obviously, Danny was an actor back then, but now he's the creator and showrunner of Dopesick, and he's become sort of this uh, very prolific writer and TV creator. So they they are still very good friends, and it, and Danny calls uh, Amy sort of his uh, adopted aunt. So they have such a good banter with each other and had a lot to say about sort of how streaming has changed everything and and how they sort of view having their projects released on streaming and the the pluses and minuses of that. And David, you got to moderate uh, Dustin Lance Black and Josh Brolin, who really did, like in the in your write up, like your voice isn't in it at all because <laughs> they were just so excited to talk to each other. It truly began with Josh like arriving a couple minutes late. Dustin, very, Dustin Lance Black, very excitedly greeting him. And then they just started asking each other questions. And like, <laughs> I think 45 minutes in, because it was it was a long one, Dustin Lance Black looks at me and goes, oh, David, did you need to ask us anything? And I was like, no, you guys, you guys keep going. No, but they were, they were great. I mean, that movie was pretty seminal for me. Milk, uh, you mean? Probably, yes, Milk. One we easily could have talked about uh, on this series, in fact. Yes. And so hearing the two of them talk about 
the project that got both of them are first and only Oscar nominations and Dustin Lance Black won for best original screenplay was was really moving. You know, they've got, they went in really different directions with their careers. Brolin um, was kind of in the midst of a of a comeback and is now pretty much a bona fide A-lister. And, and Dustin Lance Black actually left Hollywood for a while to work on um, marriage equality and that campaign and has suddenly come back with with a with force uh, with Under the Banner of Heaven, his new show. Um, so they had a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, these are all really wonderful reads. Um, and like, there's just something about getting people talking to each other. I mean, we, you know, David and Rebecca, you and Richard, too, you guys all like moderate, you know, on stage panels and Q&A's like what? Not that we are not good at our jobs interviewing, but how would you describe the energy of people who have worked together kind of getting to bounce off of each other? Because I think that's so much of the power of these interviews. Yeah, I think they they have an ability to ask questions we maybe wouldn't think of, you know, because they are collaborators and they know this industry better than we do. And and I think they can also be more playful with each other, obviously, because they have these relationships and history. And it does result in something really special. Um, I had, you know, Michael Che and Sam Richardson wrote together on Detroiters, which was a show um, that Sam Richardson starred on. and, And that was a long time ago. And I just felt like they were able to sort of tell stories about Charles Barkley and just all these sort of random <laughs> stories that I would never think to ask about that, you know, and and they can sort of dig into their history like that. And it just creates a really, like you said, unique discussion. I wanted to hear more about uh, Sam Richardson working at Disney World. He kind of just dropped that and moved on. And I was like, wait a second. I know. <laughs> I looked at that. He was like in a sort of Lion King sort of thing. I don't know. He had some interesting... Uh, work stories that he was able to share. And Michael Che, who did like door-to-door marketing. It just, yeah. They have tons of great stories, and yeah. it's cool to see those come up. Uh, well, David, you are in the middle of shepherding another series of people talking to each other, um, which is a Shotless franchise, <laughs> which I've gotten to do as well, um, which is a lot more nitty-gritty. You know, you're talking to directors and cinematographers mostly, but man, the stuff that you get out of people from these conversations, uh, and that I, you know, I talked to Ben Stiller and Jessica Lee Gagne of Severance, and same for me. Um, these are so fun to do. <laughs> How's it been for you this time around? A lot of transcribing, a lot of sifting <laughs> through, um, but this is one of my favorite things that we do every year because... Just getting the director and the cinematographer on Zoom together, they, in every case this time and almost always, you know, they haven't seen each other in a while. They are incredibly close collaborators. And so there's a really positive energy that immediately kickstarts the interview. And then uh, they just have a lot of stories. Um, one that I'm most excited about is the Better Call Saul one. It's Vince Gilligan talking with his DP. And it's a lot of Vince Gilligan talking about really how he has worked as a director since the very beginning of Breaking Bad, which was such a transformative show for TV, visually and aesthetically. There's a lot of homage in the episode we talk about, a lot of foreshadowing because this is a prequel getting closer and closer to the events of Breaking Bad. And and you just see how much care and thought and also just skill goes into every frame. And, And it's one show where it's really worth scrutinizing the details. I love it when you get into the care and thought from a show, but also like the the hurdles that they just have to overcome in the moment. Um, yeah. Like Derek Lawrence talked to Hira Murai and his cinematographer about Atlanta, which has this really surreal moment in an episode that's mostly about this young black boy where he sees a dog dressed up as his grandfather. And they had built this like human 
mannequin, basically, that the dog could, like, sit on a platform inside. But it, then the dog turned out to be, like, a chihuahua. So the head was just comically small for the body. And they were like, <laughs> oh, well, okay, this is what we're going to go with. And it's so much funnier that way, but they never planned for it. Um, I love just even, like, the most genius, like, high-level operating people in their fields. Like, they got to roll with the punches sometimes. Yeah, on the Better Call Saul one, actually, we have a we have a long story about the the journey of the Statue of Liberty giant inflatable, which was in Breaking Bad and makes its first appearance in Better Call Saul this season in this episode. And the, the sourcing of it and the need for the wind not to kill it after surviving, because <laughs> it's the same one, surviving for, you know, over a decade. Um, it's quite a story. Um, well, yeah, the Shotless series will be rolling out uh, all week, and Reunited is available to watch. We have a ton of other stuff that, you know, all kinds of freelancers, and we are writing, making a scene and character building and digging into, you know, basically every show that we're passionate about, which is, again, what's really fun about Emmy season. Um, so, Richard, I'm going to make you talk about TV real quick before we move off of Emmys, um, because we do have Emmy voters listening to the show, I believe. Um, and I just want to give us all one last chance to kind of grab people by the collars and say, pay attention to this. Um, so, Richard, is there anything that you are pulling for in these last moments of Emmy voting? Well, first of all, hello, Emmy voters. Uh, if you're in line to vote, stay in line. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, pro- there's so much. I mean, I hope people remember The White Lotus, which was 14 years ago, but is somehow eligible for this year. Um, not just Jennifer Coolidge, but maybe some of the other performances, Murray Bartlett, perhaps. And also Station Eleven, which came out at this weird just pre-Christmas time, I feel like. And there were some fans of it, but like I feel like it, it otherwise went very quietly. So I hope that that show and its many good performances get recognized. Um, basically, just rewatch what HBO put out <laughs> <laughs> this season and find your favorite thing within that. Well, David, you just dove deep on the Emmy ballot for a piece that people can read now. Um, anything that you learned from that that uh, you want to make sure people are aware of or want to root for? One thing I always like looking at with the ballots is just the sheer level of strategy that goes into um, how many things you submit, where you submit. And I think you see frontrunners really sort of establishing, hopefully, in their in their minds, their dominance. Ted Lasso going for like a lot of writing and directing nominations. And meanwhile, a show like Hacks continuing to play it safe as it did last year, which is what ultimately led to it winning writing and directing because they didn't submit too much. So they didn't split votes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's always an interesting time because voters aren't really privy to that. But every single campaign is putting things on the ballot in such a way where they want to try to manipulate voters into voting for their stuff as much as possible. And with the Emmy ballot, there's more of that kind of strategizing that you can do. Yeah. But you never know how much of it is going to work. Like, voters are going to vote for who they vote for in the end, right? Right. Famously, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, after it won, basically swept for its first season, submitted a lot of episodes for its writing for its second season, and it was not nominated for writing at all. And so you could wonder if something similar will happen to Ted Lasso this year. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of personal FYCs, I wanted to throw in for what feels like on some level a lost cause, but Impeachment, the FX series that was almost impossible to watch um, thanks to all kinds of weird streaming deals, uh, is eligible for this year's Emmys and I do think has at least a fantastic from Sarah Paulson to pay attention to, if not the entire cast as it goes down. And then maybe less of a lost cause, and you've heard me talk about this already, but I really worry people are going to forget all about Anne Hathaway and We Crashed and how great she was. I think Jared Leto was more attention-stealing, and her work on that show I think was equally good and transformative, and who doesn't want to see her nominated in the same category as her lame Miz daughter Amanda Seyfried for The Dropout? So make my dreams come true, please. 
Rebecca, who do you want to promote? Um, I think we talked a little bit about John Bernthal and We Own the City last week, so I'm not going to use that as my pick, but I just am going to bring it up again <laughs> one more time. Um, you know, I would love to see Abbott Elementary get a lot of nominations, not just for comedy series, but ideally like writing and maybe even, you know, some performances like Quinta Brunson and Cheryl Lee Ralph are so good on that show. So it would be nice to see um, some individual attention as well. And it would be good to see networks make a strong showing, right? Just in terms of like the health and variety of what gets nominated for awards. I think the more sources you can draw from, the better. Yeah, a showing. Any showing for network, I think, <laughs> would be A, a presence, yeah. a nomination. <laughs> yeah, and I do think Abbott is deserving. So, uh, you know, here's hoping. Yeah. Actually, to that point, I would love to see Mandy Moore break through for This Is Us one last time. Another yeah. one we've talked about on this podcast. But um, she is quite brilliant in the final season of the show and really reintroduced yourself as an actor over the course of it. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we can tell people who we are rooting for, uh, but they can also just, like, read VF.com and see who we've written about, <laughs> which kind of gives it away. Or um, listen to our interviews. Or, yeah, our interviews or previous episodes of the show. Um, it you know it does get to the point where you feel like you've been talking about Emmys forever. Um, and we get to do it more after nominations come out on July 12th. So everyone can look forward to that. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Let's pivot to movies uh, for a little bit because it is the height of summer movie season. There's a lot of stuff coming out right now. I think, as usual, like the actual Oscar buzz elements are pretty small, but it was hard not to notice uh, at the box office the way that Lightyear performed, um, more or less like way under expectations, especially given that uh, Talk on Maverick is just like continuing to kill it at the box office. Um, Richard, I think you had a theory on maybe what happened there. Yeah, I mean, the so-so reviews could be part of that because obviously critics guide the industry and we, mm. we lead it, we mm -hmm. change it. Um, no, I think it's because uh, for the past couple of years, uh, you know, I think pretty much the whole pandemic, the Disney strategy has been to release some things in theaters, but Pixar stuff goes to streaming, right, to Disney Plus. And so then they have this kind of disruption of that uh, new system for Lightyear, which is theatrical only for the time being. Uh, and I, my guess is that parents who facing down $60 plus spent at, on tickets were like, well, it'll be on the thing eventually. So let's just wait, you know, mm -hmm. and um, how much urgency was there to see this thing that is not a Toy Story prequel? I guess it sort of is. It's the movie that Andy liked. <laughs> that made him want to buy the toy. What's not clear about this, Richard? <laughs> Except that like you watch Lightyear and you're like, why did a seven, eight year old boy like this movie? Like it's about <laughs> like regret and like grief. And like, it's like, and also there is a, a bigger character played by Kiki Palmer who is like much closer to Andy in age. And it's like, that's the action figure. Probably all the kids would want. Like Buzz is kind of a jerk in the movie and like or the cat. I think everyone, yeah, or the, the cat. cat. Exactly. So the whole thing is confusing. It felt, it feels 
way out there on the capitalist corporatist spectrum of Pixar's output. <laughs> you know, Cars 2 is over there playing around with it. But I think that there are a lot of conspiring factors, but I really do think it was a simple thing of distribution where people were have gotten now weaned on the Disney Plus model and were hesitant to go out to theaters uh, to see a movie that they know they can watch at home. And they, you know, it's probably not that hard to not tell your six-year-old that the movie's in theaters, right? Like, I don't know, you people on here have kids, like, are they watching a lot of TV that has ads for the movies? And, you know, are they paying attention to release dates? Because I feel like if I were a parent, I would just be like, Lightyear? Oh, no, no, that's not out yet. <laughs> I would just wait till it was on streaming. Uh, I'm going to out myself as in everyone's welcome to judge me. But Happy Meal Toys gave the game away for us. Uh, there have oh, uh, no, Lightyear Happy yeah. Meal Toys, which were um, very exciting. But I actually, like, happily took my kids to see Lightyear. I was pretty yeah. excited to, like, take them both out as this big outing. Um, and we went to the Alamo Draft House, which is, like, a, a schlep and expensive, as you were saying. Um, and it was fine. It was completely fine. I think they might have been just as happy uh, seeing something that was at home. And uh, yeah, I think the quality of it, and it, it's funny because I think people think of kid movies as being kind of critic-proof. Like people will just go see the thing because it's a thing to do. Um, but knowing that there is actually really good stuff at home too, like I think the calculus gets a little bit different after the last two years of Pixar release strategies. Now, did your kids, was was Lightyear it, the character a selling point for them? Or was it just like space movie? Seems um, fun. I think, yeah, I think they both know who Buzz Lightyear is. Like, the Toy Story brand recognition is certainly there. Um, but I also think, like, they want to go eat popcorn. <laughs> like, I think going to a place is what's exciting. Um, and because I like going to the movies, you know, I think I've passed that on to them. I went and saw Top Gun Maverick by myself and then saw Lightyear again, like, 12 hours later, which was a weird, like, they're kind of about the same character, <laughs> Maverick and Buzz Lightyear <laughs> yeah, are very similar. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was weird. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I was glad that I went, but it does not surprise me at all that people are not feeling strongly compelled by this. And I hope that, like... I mean, is the answer that they just start making Pixar movies exclusively theatrical again? They they reverse that strategy? I guess. I mean, they spend so much money making these things. Yeah. And they're not, like... I think that the kind of outlook for streaming revenue has been very shaky of late, you know, with, like, yep. Netflix stock dropping and all this stuff. And, like, I think there is maybe a quiet... Or the beginnings of a quiet reassessment of that model... And Lightyear, well, by no means a bomb. I mean, it made $50 million, you know, over the weekend. It, it just was estimated to make over 70. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's doing okay. But, like, I would have to think that Disney corporate would look at this and be like, you know, we used to make a lot of money in ticket sales. And so maybe we shouldn't really confuse where our movies are available. It's so strange coming from a company that has so jealously guarded its vault, you know, all these mm -hmm. years. We're only going to release this movie for sale for this many weeks or whatever. Like, like they used to have it on lock and now it's so blurred. And I think they really just need to figure that out again. Yeah. And it was interesting to see, you know, part of the reason it didn't do well or, or part of the reason maybe the that box office report wasn't so bleak was because Jurassic World and especially Top Gun are just doing so incredibly well and holding on so incredibly well. And so the story of theatrical right now is, and it feels nice post-COVID that you can have a movie that disappointed and you can still have a report that's mostly optimistic about people going to the movies, even if one didn't fully click. Yeah, as someone who's been playing that box office game uh, every day, you know, the Wordle-style box office game, and there was a 2021 one a while ago, and it was so grim, like unbelievably <laughs> grim. I had already forgotten how bad it was, so that's a lot to put it in, into perspective for you. All the top five was just Russell Crowe's Unhinged. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was actually a Liam Neeson one out there that I've already forgotten what it's called. Yeah, I'm sure someone will remember this. 
Well, Richard, uh, in, I guess in terms of family movies that maybe are a little bit more to look forward to, you informed me right before we started recording that I guess I knew that there was a Father of the Bride remake, but it was not super on my radar. And apparently it's really good. Well, that's temper expectations some. It's pretty okay. good. I mean, it's okay. way better than I thought it would be. Okay. Um, this is a remake of, you know, well, there was a, it's a movie, a novel from the 40s, and then they made a version in 1950, and then obviously 91 was the Steve Martin thing, directed by Charles Shire, co-written by Nancy Myers. It was the start, one of the beginning phases of Nancy Myers' domination of a certain kind of cinema. Um, and we probably could have been good enough to leave the father of the bride legacy there, but you know, nothing is, uh, everything can be rebooted these days. So father of the bride has been, um, the director is this uh, guy, Gaz Alazraki, who is kind of a big deal in Mexico. Um, and I believe this is his first English language film, although there's a lot of Spanish in it. Uh, it takes place in Miami. It is about the wedding between the daughter of a prominent Cuban family in Miami and the son of a prominent Mexican family. Um, and so there are t cultural tensions there. There are some other tensions because the father of the titular father of the bride, played by Andy Garcia, is uh, not feeling too great about the wedding. It's really lively. Andy Garcia is terrific. The kids are appropriately shiny and sweet and all that, you know. And Gloria Stefan plays the Diane Keaton role, uh, and it's she's I think it's her first acting on like movie thing since um, Music of the Heart with Meryl Streep twenty something wow. years ago. Wow. And um, the cast works really well, and and the, but the the most important thing is Alice Rocky, the director. He he makes it look fancy and Nancy Myersy, and there's like a jazzy score that feels very classy, and the homes are beautiful, and the spreads of food are gorgeous. There's one scene that's a yacht party where they clearly use green screen, and that kind of took me back to like <laughs> the cheapo rom coms that are being put out these days. But otherwise, this new Father of the Bride felt. Anything but new. It felt like a movie from the early '90s that a studio spent a lot of money on and shot on location. And and I that alone, it was such a thrill to see unexpectedly on HBO Max one night uh, this weekend that I just thought I had to mention it because um, I was very skeptical about it because I just didn't think that this thing needed to be remade for a third time. But it really works. Well, it's like what we were talking about with In and Out last week, right? About a movie that just feels special because it looks good. Yeah. And that goes a long way when you're dealing with like a comedy like this. Like half the battle in some ways is the aesthetic, <laughs> and and they really accomplish. Uh, they win that part of it uh, in this movie. I've, uh, I've I haven't seen the whole thing, um, but I was very struck by how familiar a lot of it was to me, and that's a compliment to the movie because I was expecting a um, <laughs> cliche ridden, not actually shot on location, like you were saying, Richard remake and instead um you know i grew up in miami my husband is cuban and he has a big cuban family and there's a lot that you can look at we could look at and say oh yeah <laughs> this is this is lining up what a great feeling I, yeah. yeah and it was surprising and and the script you know it it gets into some prickly tensions between cuban americans or cuban exiles immigrants and other Central American, Latin American people in a way that feels very specific and textured and will probably uh, resonate that much more with people who have lived that experience, you know. But I like that the film doesn't shy away from some of the politics of that. And and Andy Garcia's character is this stubborn kind of conservative in some ways jerk, but also you know, lovable dad. And like they, they balance that really well. I mean, Garcia really, really is very good in the film. It's a great big star turn for him. He hasn't had something like this in a long time. 
And yeah, I was just very pleasantly surprised. It's witty. It lo- again, it looks great. So if you're looking for something to just pass a couple hours with, um, this is definitely something I would recommend. It sounds like it kind of answers a question you said, of like, why couldn't we leave Father of the Bride alone? Like, if you make it about different people in a different culture and from a different angle, like, it's kind of an eternal story if you keep finding fresh ways into it. Yeah, as, and and do it thoughtfully, you yeah. know, like, like actually, if you're going to have it be about an, a different culture, go into that culture to some extent, you know, like, really I- investigate it and tailor the story to fit that. Um, and I think they've done a good job of that. The dad um, of, the, of the groom, you know, is this mexican zillionaire who i think is maybe kind of supposed to be a carlos slim kind of figure and 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 they have there's some funny stuff with that and it all just works really well and i i I hope that other streamers studios whatever will see this and say oh so we can we haven't lost the ability to do that like we we know we there the the template is still out there um and i do think that had father of the bride been released theatrically i think it would have made money So I got to pick the film for this week's Pride Oscar flashback, and I was thinking about what to pick. I wanted to pick something uh, focused on a woman and ideally a woman of color, and immediately um, Pariah came to mind for me. You know, it's a 2011 film. It was D. Reese's feature directorial debut, and you know, we'll talk a little bit about what happened with it in Oscar and the Oscar situation. But this film when I saw it was just such a beautifully told story about a black lesbian woman sort of coming out and her experience just seemed felt so authentic and full of empathy. And it obviously it's a semi-autobiographical um, story based on Dee Reese's own life. And it was such a, a wonderful debut for her. So I thought that would be something that we could all rewatch and dig into. Rebecca, were you... Um... Where were you in terms of your career, in terms of movies covering? Did you see Pariah at Sundance? What do you remember about its release? I didn't see it at Sundance. I don't I don't get to see a lot of movies at Sundance back when I was going back then, <laughs> unfortunately, because I was doing a lot of interviews. So I think I saw it after. And it was just one of those things where I hadn't heard that much about it other than some buzz from Sundance. But and it just like blew me away. You know, it just felt like I was stepping into this person's story in this world so easily for being, you know, a journey I haven't walked myself and and just the way I thought it was told and shot was so beautiful. Yeah, it's like, you know, when you think of a Sundance movie, kind of the classic formats that reoccur at that festival a lot, like a coming of age story is a really familiar format for it. And we've talked about plenty of them before. But it's almost like what we were saying with Father of the Bride, when you take a story from a different perspective. And there's certainly uh, at this point, and even now, we're not very many movies about a black lesbian coming of age story. It feels completely new and so fascinating to kind of to go into the, the world of our main character, Lee. David, what do you remember about when this movie came out? I did not see this movie for quite some time. I I saw it around Mudbound, actually. I missed it. Um, And I really, really loved Mudbound, um, which is why I watched it. And I I remember feeling kind of bummed that I had missed out on, like, the discovery moment of a really exciting filmmaker. Um, This is such a great, beautiful first movie. Um, And what what really struck me about it, um, maybe particularly in contrast to Mudbound, which is a pretty dark movie, uh, is it's it's a really optimistic and sweet movie a lot of the time. Um, it doesn't shy away from uh, the harsh reality and the pain of that experience, but it also really brims with a certain level of joy, kind of like how we were talking about BPM, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and that really, that, that was just a really nice surprise because I think sometimes when you associate um, a certain level of acclaimed breakout Sundance coming of age movie, it tends to take on that grimmer (laughs) sheen maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this one did not have that at all. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, a story about someone struggling, about I mean, who she can't, like, be herself around her family. Um, but even though you've got her parents who are kind of these roadblocks to her happiness, they have this really lovely dinner table scene early on in the movie where they're kind of, like, joking and kidding each other around. And her relationship with her little sister is complicated, but there's a lot of love in there, too. I love how it feels confident to hold those two things in one place. Um, and I think a weaker movie wouldn't have been able to do that both at the same time. Yeah, Totally. There are so many things to recommend this film. You know, you think about it, oh, it's this tiny independent film that debuted at Sundance. It it could have been very spare, kind of a shaky cam realist kind of thing. And yet it looks gorgeous. Oh and, my God. And, and, and like just has a real sense of visual uh, and oral intent behind it, which is so exciting. And the performances are so good. Adepero Oduye is incredible. Kim Waynes is amazing mm-hmm. uh, as as the mom. But something I really like about it kind of in the text is that it starts after our lead has made first discoveries. She's already full in the process of exploring this part of herself and, you know, having her friend get a strap on for her mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And I, I love that we meet someone not in the very middle of their experience. It's still early days, but like that it's a movie about someone who has figured this out about themselves and is just trying to reconcile it with the world because so many movies we see about LGBTQ uh, young people is about that kind of coming out and discovery. And this is a coming out film to some extent, but, but she's not coming out to herself. And I think that's a really interesting um, way to, to frame this film and, and, and distinguishes it from a lot of its, you know, kin. Yeah. Yeah, the way that this movie looks, it, it won the Excellence in Cinematography Award at Sundance that year, and it's Bradford Young. And I didn't realize like how early in this career he was because it really felt like after this movie, he was just everywhere. Like his cinematography was kind of instantly recognizable. And I feel like I haven't seen him on a feature in a long time, and I'm wondering uh, where he's been because man, it is incredible to watch how his camera works. Yeah, I think you know this is like BPM. We're talking about a film who that didn't end up getting Oscar nominations. And, uh, you know, I was looking back at sort of headlines at the time about mentioning the snub of this film. And and this was the same year, you know, The Help got nominated. And, and I think that's been a narrative of Oscar films overall that, you know, historical films that feature Black stories that often have sort of a white savior narrative are usually more welcomed in by the Academy than sort of modern uh, black stories. Uh, Mm. You know, there are, of course, exceptions. We'll talk about Moonlight in the future. But I think this, you know, back in 2012 was still dealing with a a voting body that wasn't as diverse as it is now. And um, I do think it is a shame, you know, that it didn't get more attention, any attention in the end from the Oscars. Although at a parody, I did get a famous shout out from Meryl Streep. Uh, I think at the Golden Globes. Uh, do, does this speech live in everyone's brains the way that yes. it does in mine? <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Where she, she pronounces Mia Vasakoska's name in a truly uh, deranged fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I mean, because it really was that movie that season. I think people were like, why are we not talking about Pariah more? And that mm. still happens, certainly. But I think you're right, Rebecca, that the diversity of the Academy now would make a really big difference. Yeah. 
Yeah, this was before even 12 Years a Slave won. So mm-hmm. you did not have a film with a black cast that won Best Picture at this point. So the, the landscape was not friendly <laughs> to um, black filmmakers, especially on their first film. It's just such a bold and exciting statement of intent from a filmmaker. And it did seem to make some impact that year, like in the whatever circles we, we may travel in, you know, it, it had a life like it, 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 the movie definitely loomed somewhat large in a certain sector of the film loving world. And it, you know, it pushed Dee Rees onto to bigger, exciting things. And she did Bessie for HBO with Queen Latifah, a movie that I think deserves a revisit if people have seen it and kind of shrugged it off or, or haven't seen it because Queen Latifah is so good in that movie. And, you know, and then obviously uh, Mudbound was a huge deal for her. And and then obviously she did go on to the last thing he wanted, which was a kind of debacle for Netflix. And I hope it hasn't really hobbled her career because rewatching Pariah to talk about it with you guys, like I just was reminded of of just what a, an assured filmmaker she is mm-hmm. and and has such a a granular gaze on things in a way that you know it would be easy to make this movie in a very in a much more general way that seems to appeal to as many people as possible but I I I think in keeping it specific that's what makes it oddly universal. I wish that we would see more stuff like this that was really textured and and intimate um and I hope we see that from D Rees in the future. Yeah, this movie with, you know, both Dioris's direction at a parody's performance and Bradford Young's cinematography, it just reminds you of these really basic things about movies. Like, if a camera lingers on someone's face and lets you see them change and think through things, like the, you know, a shot early on um, of Lee on her way home on the bus kind of changing clothes to return back to her home. Like, it just gives you such a glimpse into someone's world. And for so much of movie history, that camera has not lingered on a wide variety of people. Um, And the, the way that Pariah just engages with all of its characters and really cares about them and what's going on in their heads even the characters like um like her mom who is sort of the the villain in the end um it's it's such an empathetic movie for everybody the scene on the bus is such good shorthand yeah it, it's it's mm-hmm. just a wordless scene where you're like oh so she doesn't live this life everywhere yeah. you know and it's not so subtle that you can't you know but it but it, it just it communicates so much with so little and i think that's a hallmark of someone who really knows what they're doing behind the camera can I share something? Also a great, also a great dildo scene. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the little sister. Like, I think an under, really underrated part of the movie is how yeah. she's such a brat, but like, so, but sweet and caring. Uh, that's a that's a lot of little sister energy there. I love um, me saying also the dildo scene, and then for those who haven't seen the movie, we go to the sister. <laughs> <laughs> the dildo what has happened? nothing to do with the sister. <laughs> Well, no, the, the sisters, I think, appropriately squicked out by the <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. That does it for this week's show. As we mentioned, uh, next week will be our final Pride flashback. Uh, what a thrill these have been. We'll be talking about Moonlight. So please join us for that. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com and a ton of Emmy coverage, as mentioned. Please catch up on all of it. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97 and Rebecca Becca M. Ford you can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7180 I've enjoyed hearing from some of you about the Leo Grand mask that we discussed last week our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs and this week's award for the best description of every streaming service in the month of April goes to Richard Lawson hello Emmy voters
I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.